You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning. It's good to see you today. Um, several years ago, before I moved here, I was driving down the road one day and I saw a man walking along the road and my deduction was this guy might need some help. Um, it looked like he possibly had everything that he owned with him. Uh, he looked like maybe he had not been able to clean himself up in quite a while. And I also just kind of deduced he looks like maybe he's hungry. So I pulled over, I rolled down my window, I said, excuse me, sir, is there anything I can do to help you? And he said, no, no, I'm blessed. I was like, okay. Um, I said, are, are you sure? Like, could I maybe get you something to eat? Uh, you know, anything I can do? No, it's all good. Uh, I'm blessed. And um, if you know me, I don't really give up that easy. And so we kind of started going around because, uh, you know, I know better for him what he needs than he knows, right? So I just, we started going around in circles. But then at some point he said something that it all clicked and I realized this conversation is really not going to go any further. He uttered the words, um, how do I put this? He basically said, I know how this works. And I was a little bit puzzled. But, but I, I figured out, okay, this man either doesn't understand my motives and is believing that, yes, I'm saying I want to give him something, but it's only because I want something in return. Or this man somehow throughout the course of his life has never really learned how to receive a gift. I don't know if you've ever given anybody something, given someone a gift, and the next thing you know, they're acting like you gave them a loan. Or you've tried to give someone something simply out of generosity, and they're trying to figure out how to pay you back. And it kind of just takes away from the whole heart of, of giving. The reason why this happens is that at times we fall victim to what's either called the worker's ethic or the debtor's ethic. And the, a worker's ethic believes there's not really anything that you're going to get that you don't deserve, good or bad, right? If I want something good, ultimately I'm going to have to work for it. And then the debtor's ethic believes that whatever I get to some level, I'm going to have to pay it back. Well, thankfully, there's an alternative to the worker's ethic and the debtor's ethic. And it's what we call blessing. Blessing. A blessing, which you probably know, is when you are given something that you understand you did nothing to deserve and you need to do nothing, you can't do anything to pay it back. Why is this relevant to us? Well, because like the gentleman I pulled over and attempted to help one day, we all at times approach God with a worker's ethic or a debtor's ethic. We, we come to God and, and it feels like or it sounds like on the surface that humility is what drives us there. Like, hey, I want to take responsibility for myself, pay my own way, so on and so forth. Well, it's not humility that drives us there. It's actually the opposite. It's pride. 
because we understand that there's nothing I could have done to deserve this. There's nothing I could ever possibly do to pay this back. And that's difficult for us because we don't feel like we've paid our own way, that we're uh, carrying the weight we're supposed to. This is the conflict or one of the conflicts at the very core of why Paul writes the letter to the church at Ephesus. This is what's going on, the worker's ethic and the debtor's ethic. Well, the church in Ephesians, excuse me, in Ephesus, these Ephesian Christians, they live in a religious culture, make no mistake, okay? Very religious, but the religion that they're surrounded by is religion that's rooted in worker's ethic, debtor's ethic. A lot of people in this day and time in Rome, in Ephesus, worshipped Caesar, Worship may not be the, the right word, but we'll use it. You see, at that point in time, they believed, a lot of people believed that whoever was the Caesar, that they had some sort of divine status and rights sort of bestowed upon them. This is why in Jesus' day and time, if you were in Jerusalem, where the Roman Empire was very present, it would not have been anything unusual to hear two Romans saying to one another, Caesar is Lord. That's a little weird, isn't it? Well, it's weird to us because these radicals came along who started following this guy named Jesus and saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. Also in Ephesus, you had the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. Google it. It's insane. Tons of pagan and idol gods and worship going on in Ephesus. But all of this pagan religion, all of it, it was and it is rooted in an effort to get God to bless me, to know what do I have to do to deserve that God's benefits or what do I have to do to pay that God back for blessing me in such a way? And so Paul is writing these new Christians in Ephesus to remind them and to teach them that they have been blessed beyond measure by the one true creator, sustainer God. And not only is he creator and sustainer, he is not some idol that sits in a temple. He's not some idea or principle. He is not only God, he is father. So you can understand that living in a culture where everybody's gods were very distant, far off. Maybe they blessed you. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it was dependent upon how well you performed. Maybe it wasn't. How that was very, very different from an intimate, up-close father. Those are worlds apart. The whole point of Jesus' death and resurrection is to reconcile us back to our Father. So Paul opens this letter to the Ephesians with a very, very um, hefty doxology of praise to God. In fact, this might be one of the longest sentences in human history. Definitely one of the longest sentences in the Bible. Um, there's a theologian and writer that said that this is the most monstrous sentence conglomeration he's ever found in the Greek language. 
from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. One big voice of praise to God. Thankfully, that some English folks in our translation decided to stick at least a couple of periods in there so we could slow down and take a breath. And for any of you who are kind of like me and your grammar freaks, uh, it just kind of gives us a little bit more peace. But through this doxology, the Apostle Paul proclaims the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. So fasten your seatbelt and let's take a look. Paul opens this letter to the Ephesians explaining that he is the one who wrote it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, writing it to the saints in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's stop right there. Um, Tony Merida and David Platt have a commentary on Ephesians. And in that commentary, they assert that you can take this doxology and you can kind of break it up into three different thoughts. And that's the way I want us to approach these scriptures this morning. And so with that in mind, the first part that we just read explains to us that we are chosen by the Father. We are chosen by the Father. You are probably well aware of the fact that humans have never really had an issue or a problem expressing praise and worship. We don't. Where we begin to have the issue is expressing praise and worship to the wrong things. And so Paul very purposefully begins this letter by making sure we know there is only one who deserves our praise, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise, glory, and honor to God. Why? He has fulfilled all our spiritual needs in Christ. There is zero need that you have in your life on a spiritual level. Nothing that you need spiritually that is not available to you in Christ. If you want to go through an exercise and try and think of maybe there's some sort of spiritual blessing I can think of that, no, I got that outside of Jesus. You will exhaust yourself. There are none. Paul says, in Christ, he has blessed us in Christ. 11 verses, okay? 11 times in these 11 verses, Paul uses the words, in Christ, or in him. 11 times, 11 verses. Paul's obviously trying to tell us something and make a point. All of this is possible only in Christ. He goes on in verse 4. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us God pursued us. He set us apart 
to be holy and blameless. Salvation is totally dependent upon God. You and I have to reckon with the fact that we did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to deserve it. You and I, we did nothing to initiate it. We did nothing to influence God's decision to save us. How do I know this? Well, back to verse 4, because even as he chose us, he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. You and I, we weren't here at the foundation of the world, yet at that point, God was already determining to save you and to save me. Mind blown, okay? And why did he do this? God redeemed us so that we might be holy. God redeemed us so that we might be made more like Christ. And then he moves into verse 5. And he says, In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There are two incredibly significant words in the scripture that we just read. And those words are adoption and predestination. And I want to talk about them for a minute. First of all, adoption. We understand that God pursued us from the very beginning to adopt us. Why did this need to happen? Well, because when sin came into this world, when you and I were born, we came here um, opposed to what many may think. We were opposed to God. We have the seed of sin in us. We did not enter this world perfect and then at some point decide to rebel. We were already set against God. And we needed to be bought back. The only way that could happen was through a perfect sacrifice. That would be Jesus. And so God sent Jesus so that we could be reconciled back, that we could be adopted by the Father. And this creates these two relationships which... For lack of a better way of putting it, these are inadequate terms, but we're going to use them nonetheless. It creates this vertical relationship in my life and horizontal. In the vertical, what we we mean by that is we have now, because of this adoption, we have been given all of the rights and privileges of the children of God because that is what we are. But then there's the horizontal In that if I have been adopted and you have been adopted and you have been adopted, we now understand that we share these blessings, we share these glorious blessings as brothers and sisters in Christ. But God didn't just adopt you. God predestined to adopt you. Some of you are uncomfortable with that, I know. Some of us, we hear that word, the P word, predestination. What is that about? Well, I want to approach it this morning from an angle that maybe you haven't thought about before. And I want to say that the fullness of what all of that means, I will never wrap my head around. And we're not going to dodge talking about the fullness of what that means. Uh, When we get to the letter of Romans, there will be no dodging. But this morning, I want to look at it from this angle, okay? He predestined us for adoption. This does not, 
imply some sort of like glorified spiritual version of natural selection. Where God just lined us all up and said, okay, him and her and her, he's out. Just get him out of my sight. And I'll take these two and these three and move these out of here. That's not the way it works. In an attempt at at looking at this, Russell Moore, in his book, Adopted for Life, I want you to look at something he says. He says, God is not some metaphysical airport security screener waving through the secretly pre-approved and sending the rest into a holding tank for questioning. God is not treating us like puppets made of meat, forcing us along by his capricious whim. Instead, the doctrine of election or predestination tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. Understand, you did not accidentally stumble into God. Like one day you were walking along and, you know, like if you've ever been walking along and found a, a dollar, you weren't walking along one day and were like, hey, there's God. You, you also did not self-determine or self-initiate to go looking for him either. A.W. Tozer, the great theologian in his book, God's Pursuit of Man, he wrote this, Salvation is from our side a choice, but from the divine side it is a seizing upon, an apprehending, a conquest of the Most High God. The right of determination must always remain with God. Let me submit to you this morning, Tozer is not speaking on Tozer's behalf. He is speaking from what he has heard from Jesus. Because Jesus, in John six forty four says, No one will come to me. No one will surrender to me. No one will have faith in me. No one will follow me unless the Father first draws him. The only way that we ever believe or receive Jesus is that the Father has first been drawing our hearts. Look at verse 6. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It also is very important that we understand that God's blessings toward us are always because of his grace. Friends, if you ever stand in a moment and you are tempted to sit there and try and figure out, okay, did I get this? Is this blessing in my life because either of the goodness of God or the performance of Brian? Always go with the goodness of God. Like, did I do something here? And if you hear somebody preach the idea that you and I need to pray more or we need to give more or we need to do something so that God will pour out blessing on us. Rebuke that teaching. Do you understand me? Rebuke it because you have everything that you need in Jesus. Everything. And it's because of God's grace. But now that's the because, all right? His blessings toward us are always because of his grace, but his blessings toward us are always for his glory. So ultimately, it's always because of his grace and for his glory. So now let's go back to this word, 
predestination. If you pull it apart, you find in it, here's the word, destination. Well, there's also this word in there that we don't say a lot because it sounds kind of mystical and worldly. We don't talk about destiny, you know. But this is a real word. It's there. They're all linked together and they're rooted in the same thing. So understand that predestination for us as believers in Jesus is a God-given destiny. Okay? God-given destiny. And so here's what we understand. If you know Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and surrendered to him and you are a child of God, you have a predetermined, predestined, God-given destiny to bring him glory. If you're a follower of Christ, you have been predestined, you have a God-given destiny, and it is that your life, all of it, would bring God glory. And that is why you have been chosen by the Father. We have been chosen by the Father, but we also have been redeemed by the Son. We've been redeemed by the Son. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, with which he lavished which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We are redeemed in Christ. His blood covers all our sin. Know that God allowed, determined, and ordained for this to happen because of his grace. Forgiveness is ours in Christ because of the grace of God. I want you to look with me in Colossians chapter 1. What Paul says in Colossians 1 is not repeating what he's saying in Ephesians 1, but it so powerfully parallels it and affirms it. Colossians 1 verse 13, it says that he, God, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We are redeemed in Christ. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Is your brain about to explode? Because mine is. Do you get what Paul is saying? That Jesus was here before it all, and it was created by him, it was created through him, it was created for him, so he is creator, he is redeemer, he's holding it all together, he is sustainer, and Paul's not done yet. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? That's a weird term. Well, what that means is, you know, Jesus, he, he called Lazarus out of the grave, right? So Jesus wasn't the first 
person resurrected, but Jesus was the first person to resurrect himself. Nobody said, hey, Jesus, come on out. Jesus just decided, I'm done now. Death, you're through. I'm walking out. Firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. He might be first. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I got to take a breath. God brings redemption for a reason. And I'll be honest with you that our view and our vision of why God is bringing this redemption is very often a little bit more narrow than it ought to be. God makes known his will and his purposes that he brought about this redemption. Look in verse 10 as a plan for the fullness of all time. Why? To unite all things in him. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world seems to be rebelling against itself. At odds is a ridiculously way to put it. At war is what's happening. Because creation, all of creation is, long, is longing and groaning for God to come and make all of this right. And so, yes, yes, the, all things coming together. It, when we think about redemption, we need to think about the fact that we, me, Brian, I am saved. But folks, it's about way more than just little old me and my salvation. It is about God bringing all of his creation and all of his people to a place of unity and restoration. And that will happen in Christ. And so when we say we are redeemed by the Son, hey, don't just think that was, that was for little old me. No. It was for everything. You have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, but we have also been and are still being assured by the Spirit. Look at verse 11. In him, there it is again, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might continue to be, might be, to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have an inheritance that cannot be prematurely or too extravagantly spent. The inheritance that we have in Christ, you will not like walk in one day and find crazy Uncle Eddie wasting it on something at the pawn shop. Okay? It doesn't work that way. I read an article a couple weeks ago about a man who was about to spend more money on attorney fees than he was actually set to potentially inherit from his grandmother's will. Why was he doing this? Well, because he wanted to get to the bottom of what he called the truth. Okay? 
And the truth he believed was that there is no way grandma would have left this to my sister or my brother. And so he was going to spend more money on attorney fees than he actually was going to potentially inherit through the will just to make sure his brother and sister didn't get grandma's stuff. Stand on your principles. That's stupidity. Our inheritance is not something that we have to worry about being spent prematurely or being spent too extravagantly. Why? Because understand, our inheritance is not something that when kingdom comes, that God is going to divide up amongst us, okay? When you become a child of God, all of God belongs to all of you. All that he is and all that he has are now yours. They are now available to us in Christ through the Spirit. And that inheritance, that promise is sealed. It's confirmed within us by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.16. Romans 8.16, Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. That's not the only place where you read this in the New Testament. We're told that in Hebrews. We're told that in John. And a lot of times that comes when we get disciplined, right? But what happens on the other side of that discipline is, oh, praise God, once again, it's affirmed to me that I belong to him because he won't let me go through that without disciplining me. The, the Spirit testifies within us that we belong to God. Our hearts are branded, and it's not coming off. The Spirit doesn't do like some temporary tattoo thing. It's not even a real tattoo. You know you can get those taken off now. And my understanding is that that hurts worse than the actual tattoo. But nonetheless, you can get it taken off. But have you ever seen one of those football players, like an offensive lineman, whose arm has been branded? What on earth is that about? That's not coming off. The Spirit of God doesn't one day just decide, yeah, I'm done with you, I'm out. The promise is sealed. It's not coming off. It's not getting spent too soon. But now let's go back for a moment and talk about that salvation that we have because Paul makes a very, very powerful statement here. And he tells us that everything that he has ascribed to us. And when I use that word here, what I mean is everything that he has said is made available to us in Christ. This applies to those of us who look at verse 13, those of us who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Those are the ones who are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Make no mistake, salvation is initiated, it is made possible, it is offered by God and God alone. But salvation requires that you, that I, that you, it requires that all of us individually and personally believe the gospel. This is the basis of our receiving the Spirit. Believe in the Son, receive the Spirit. 
those of you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter what your mama and your daddy believe. Doesn't matter if you showed up here this morning. None of that matters. What matters is that you have submitted and surrendered. Jesus is Lord. This is a theological juggernaut, these scriptures we just read. And if you are a Christian and you read through this enough, there should be some breaking point where you just eventually say, God, why would you do all this? Why would you do this? I, mean, I, I don't know if you've collectively captured everything that Paul has, has said here. This is a lot of blessing. Because see, we've been blessed in Christ with holiness and righteousness that are not our own. We have been predestined by God that he might adopt us as his sons and daughters. We've received redemption. We've received forgiveness of our sins. We've received grace upon grace that Paul says that God lavishes upon us. We have been sealed by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Why would God do all this? Paul tells us three times. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14 to the praise of his glory. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. All this God has done to the praise of his glory. And so if you're here this morning and you are a child of God, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, my prayer is that you would be reinvigorated, renewed, that your heart would be stirred by the reminder that you have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, that even right now in this moment, you are being assured by the Spirit, but you know that God has done all of this in you for the praise of His glory. If you're here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ My prayer for you is that today, as you have heard the word of salvation, the truth of the gospel, that you will believe in him. And that you will believe in him with an understanding that you did not just happen to stumble upon God, but that God has already been drawing your heart to him. I want to close this morning by taking a minute just to talk about what Mark Driscoll calls cat and dog theology. Because I believe this very, very, again, inadequately, but powerfully helps us understand how we should approach God. There's a cat and a dog. They have the same owner. They have both been given an incredible bed. 
They're petted and combed. They get treats all the time. They get to go outside whenever they want, but, you know, they rule the house. Some days they go to kitty and doggy daycare, so they've got a fairly decent social life. These are the most spoiled pets on the face of the planet. Well, in a moment of self-reflection, the cat thinks to himself, I must be the most amazing and valuable cat on the planet. But also in a moment of self-reflection, the dog thinks to himself, I must have the most amazing, valuable, treasured master on the face of the planet. No offense, cat people, but you know cats think like that. And again, no offense, but here at the brook, we buy into dog theology. Because we understand that we have never done anything to earn or deserve God's love. But we also don't surrender to him and submit to him so that he will love us. We surrender to him and we submit to him because he has already loved us. We understand that we love him and that we love each other because he has first loved us. Hey, friends, this is good news. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we just... pray that you would stir our affection for you more than anything in this world. Father, we pray that if we have been guilty of coming to you with a worker's ethic or a debtor's ethic, God, that we could ever possibly earn or deserve this, that we could ever possibly pay it back. Lord, lead us to repentance this morning. Father, we ask that through the power of your spirit and the power of your word, working in us to do what we could not do on our own, God, that you would renew our vision for this life that you've put before us. That our lives would be a doxology of praise. In just a moment, we're going to respond to God by singing, uh, by declaring and proclaiming His glory. But as we do, if you're here this morning and you need to come to the steps or the foot of the cross and pray, uh, we just welcome you and invite you to come. If you need someone to pray with you or you are here today and you want someone to tell you what it looks like to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Some of our pastors or elders will be at the tables in the back. They would love to talk with you, pray with you. But Jesus, we declare that you are King of Kings.
Lord of Lords. You are most high God. May you be honored and glorified in this place in our lives. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.